Freedom, a beautiful word, longed for today more than ever. And now, what will you do? Will you fight or retreat? When challenges are set before you, will you lead with faith or by sight? Will you act with both kindness and courage? With might and compassion? See a king through the eyes of a child who finds beauty in brokenness and strength in weakness. A great king wields both the heart and sword. Find hope in a king that reveals the true path of victory. Well, this evening we close our series on the life of David entitled Harp and Sword with a flashback. A flashback into David's life where God enters into a covenant with him and provides him with these powerful promises. This is before David has sinned before the Lord and others, before he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah, then tried to cover it up. This is before he is reproached and he repents and then he is restored. It is a formidable event in his life. And I love flashbacks. The reason that I say that I love flashbacks is because one of my favorite shows of all time is Lost. It is one of the greatest shows ever. What a time for TV. Many, many years ago, before Netflix, before binge watching, you had to sit down, make a schedule, and be there for when the show was going to air. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. for the first season, 9 p.m. for seasons two through six. You had people come over, the world stopped, you would watch the show, you couldn't fast forward through commercials, you would sit with your friends after the show and talk about what in the world is actually going on, and if you were a nerd like me, you would then go to the forums at night to begin discussing with other people what's actually happening in the show. Now, I'm talking about Lost, and I know that there are haters right now in the comment section saying Lost isn't a good show, I gave up on season two. Listen. Do not hate on the show unless you have gone through all six seasons. If you have gone through all six seasons of Lost and you still hate on it, I'm inviting you to a virtual coffee time where we can discuss. We're going to get a group of us, we'll discuss Lost, and we'll figure out whether or not it is one of the greatest shows of all time, which it is, or whether or not you think it is a trash show. The Zoom link is going to be 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42. That's a Lost joke. If you didn't get it, then you look it up. But the reason I say that Lost is one of the greatest shows of all time is because the way that they use flashback, it actually helps you understand the characters. You get to see their motivations. You see their life experiences. You see all these things that formed them. And that is why flashback is such a powerful thing. And so today, as we flash back into David's life, we look into this period in his life where he is formed powerfully. This event, this moment that will shape his life forever. You see, what takes place right before the 2 Samuel chapter 7 is David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. We saw that a few weeks ago. David begins this parade and he brings the presence of God into Jerusalem. He is the newly anointed and crowned king. He has finally taken residence 
as the king of Israel after 20 years of waiting. And now David has this desire deep in his heart. His desire is to now build a temple, a house for the Lord. You see, David, as he is now living in a palace of cedar, it says, in Jerusalem, he desires for the Lord to live in the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, in a fitting dwelling place. It says that he begins to speak about this desire to Nathan the prophet. And as he shares with him, hey, listen, how can I be in a palace and how can God then be in a tent as he's moved around? It's not fitting. Nathan says to David and he says, go and do it because the Lord is with you. Go ahead and get ready and prepared to build the temple. This is David's desire. But then it says that evening, God comes to Nathan the prophet and he says this, David will not build the temple. That will be his son. It will not be his privilege. He will not have that opportunity. But there is a promise that I am bringing to David. There is a covenant that I am coming before him and entering into with him. It is a binding, everlasting agreement. And God tells Nathan, I want you to go and tell this to David. So Nathan comes to David, and he shares with him this covenant and this news as we read in our passage. He says, you will not build the temple, though that is the desire of your heart. It will be your sons, but God is entering into a covenant with you, and this covenant will have three promises. The first is, your name will be great. You will have a spiritual legacy. The second is that God will protect you from your enemies and you will have rest. And the third is that you will be established as an everlasting kingdom. That through you, David, there will be an everlasting kingdom. What a promise. But as we kind of marvel at this covenant, as we look closer into this covenant and what God is saying to David in this this agreement, this binding agreement that God makes with David, we actually see even more beauty. Because what we begin to see is the privilege of the promise. We see the principle of the promise. And lastly, the power of the promise. So the first thing that we see is the privilege of the promise. As we look in the passage here, and we see that the first thing that David hears is that he will not be the one to build the temple. That had to have been so disappointing. Can you imagine how that felt? He's waited 20 years, roughly, to be crowned king. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. He wants to put God in a fitting house, in a temple. And not only is that his desire, but it's also the expectation of others. Because what would have been common is that when a king or a queen is established in a kingdom, they would then immediately erect a house of worship or a temple for the god or the gods of those people. It would essentially communicate to people that the god or the gods that are worshipped in that culture and society are in line with the king and the queen, that they're working together. So David has this desire, and yet he receives this disappointing news that it will not be his honor, it will not be his privilege, 
and that desire will go unmet. Disappointing. Have you ever had an experience like that? I'm sure you have, probably many of them, where you desire something good. You desire something for your life, and yet as you begin to seek the Lord in prayer, as you begin to look around at what is taking place around you, it is evident that God is saying to you, no. Not you, or maybe God says, not yet. And what makes that so difficult is that as you begin to unpack that and to work through that and to process the fact that you desire something really good, and yet God is saying no or not yet, it's not only disappointing and tough to hear that, but it's also even more disappointing and tough because other people have expectations of you that that desire would then be met. Other people look at you and think, well, hey, why haven't you made it to, to that place in your career yet? Keep talking about that desire. How come you haven't been able to elevate yourself? How come you haven't been able to get your future in line? How come you haven't been able to identify your true calling? How come you're so dissatisfied in that area? How come you haven't been married? How come you haven't started a family yet? All of these desires that are good desires to advance and grow in your career, to discover your calling, to really have a clear vision for your future, to get married, to start a family. And yet sometimes God says no or not yet. And then other people, their expectations are mounting upon you. And they wonder why nothing is taking place. It's tough. It's certainly tough for David here as the deep desire of his heart to build a temple. He hears no. But you see, your disappointment in unmet desires doesn't negate God's promises. Your disappointment in unmet desires does not negate God's promises. In fact, God is inviting you into the privilege of His promise. When God says no, or when God says not yet, there's somewhere else in your life that He's saying yes and yes now. That though he may be saying no in one place and not yet in one place, there are other places in your life where he's saying yes to you and yes now. That his desire, his desire for you and for your flourishing and for your good and his promises over you are still abundant. They are still before you. And they are still true, even when there is unmet desires. David writes a verse that is a profound verse in the book of Psalms. And I have to imagine that he's thinking about this experience where God says no to this desire of his heart, a good desire to build the temple. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, it's interesting that David writes that and prays that and sings that over God because David did not have all the desires of his heart met. But notice what he says, the trajectory. Delight yourself in God first, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in God, you will see your desires reshaped. You will see your desires altered in a way where you actually are able to see what God wants you to see. What the real true root desire is. That he will be able to show you 
what he's doing in your life and the promises before you and the privileges that he's inviting you into. You see, when you delight yourself in the Lord, you can't be discouraged. When you delight yourself in the Lord, you can't be disappointed because you're going to begin to see how God is actually fulfilling the deep-rooted desires of your heart. Maybe not in the way that you thought or in the time frame that you imagined, but he is going to meet them. See, what happens in David's life is that God says, no, you're not going to build the temple, but he actually meets that desire. He comes to David and he says, you're not going to build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. But guess what, David? You're going to prepare it. You're going to plan it out. You're going to organize it. You're going to get everything together. You're going to use your strategic mind to begin to put all the pieces together. You're going to invest in that so that your son is prepared to really build it. Without David's investment, without his management, without his organization... The temple would have never been built. See, God gives him the desire of his heart, but in a way that he didn't imagine. There is a promise before you, and God's promises are sure, and they are true, and they are abundant. But there are times where he does not give them in the way that we want, or in the way that we imagine, or in the time frame. But he asks us to delight ourselves in him, and see the privileges before us that we can step into. Where's he calling you to, to say, yes, this is where God wants me now. Yes, this is what I'm supposed to invest in. It looks different than I thought, but it's actually better. It's actually for my good. It's actually for my joy. I'm actually delighting in God, and I'm seeing these desires satisfied. You see, this is what happens with David. And then as David begins to process this as he begins to see the privileges before him he not only sees the privilege of the promise but he begins to see the principle of the promise you see the privilege is that God invites him into new areas into new things as a king that will fulfill his desires even when he says no he says yes somewhere else but the principle of the promise is that none of it is David None of the blessings, none of the greatness, none of the privileges are David. Here's what David says in verse 8. In verse 8, it's, it's, well, David's receiving this from the Lord. God says to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people. God looks at David and says, I took you from the pasture to be a prince. I love that. From pasture to prince. Don't, don't get it twisted. Don't think that all this greatness and all these blessings and your position and your privileges are because of anything you have done. I have taken you from the pasture and I have made you a prince. That's David's story. From pasture to prince. What's your story? What's your story? Were you a skeptic that God made a son? Were you directionless that God made into a daughter? Were you an addict that God made an ambassador? What's your story? Are you a prodigal that God made into a pastor? That's my story. I'm a prodigal that God made a pastor. I, I, I was never serious in life. 
really about anything except for making people laugh. I enjoyed leading people. I always found myself in positions of leadership, but I was never leading people in the right way. I had this desire to lead. I had this desire to do something with my life, to make a difference in people's lives. I didn't know what that looked like. It oftentimes looked negative, to be honest. In fact, I remember my senior year of high school, people telling me, hey, Carter, you should apply to be class president. And I thought, I don't want to apply to be class president because I don't want to speak in front of people. How weird is that? No, I mean, hello. But who am I that I should be here? Who am I? I, I mean, I'm, I'm a prodigal that God made a pastor, and it wasn't until my freshman year of college, it wasn't until my freshman year of college where I really truly understood who God is and what Christ has done for me, and that I delighted in the Lord that I saw the deep desires of my heart fulfilled, that God gave me those desires. I never understood that until I delighted in him. And so I can look at my life as you can look at your life and say, none of this is me. None of it is me. This privilege that I have to communicate God's word to you is not because of any skill. It's not because of any training. It's not because of any charisma. It's none of that. It's because God decided to take a prodigal and make him a pastor. Like God decided to take David from the pasture and make him a prince. Like God has decided to take you, whatever you were, a skeptic and make you a son. Maybe you were basic and he made you a bride. God takes us from a lowly place and he places us somewhere where we can look back and say, God, you have done all of this. Who am I? That's how David responds as he hears the covenant. Look what he says in verse 18. It says, then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Verse 21 and 22, he says, Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no one God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. David says this, God, all of it is on you. It's all on God. My story is on God. Your story is on God. All of the greatness, all of the privileges, all of the promises, all of the opportunities, all of it is on God. See, that is the principle of God's promise. It's all Him. All the greatness, everything is on Him. And when you begin to see that, when you begin to see that all of, the, all of the promises, all of the blessings are all on God and that God has actually given you these privileges to step into, you can begin to trust the power of the promise. That there is power when God makes promises because He upholds them and He never breaks them. See, He says three things to David in the covenant. As I mentioned before, He said that He's going to have a great name. He's going to have this spiritual legacy. He's going to be protected from his enemies, and he is going to have an everlasting kingdom, that there will be prosperity, there will be protection, and an everlasting kingdom. First, he says, you're going to have prosperity. Verse 9, God says to David, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is true, right? I mean, we are here today thousands upon thousands of years after David's life, 
and we are speaking about him and his name, which carries great weight. There is a spiritual legacy to, to David and his family. David is one of the most known figures in all of Scripture. He is one of the most heralded figures in all of the Old Testament. He's one of the most known people in the entire Bible all throughout the world today. God kept his promise. He has a great name. He's a man after God's own heart. What a title. And the second promise of this covenant is for protection. In verse 11, it says, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. God says, David, listen, I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. I'm going to protect you from all of your enemies. How refreshing that must have been for David, who has been on the run for 10 years of his life in the wilderness, running from cave to cave, wondering if Saul is going to finally catch up to him and kill him. It's exhausting. And now God says, David, I'm going to protect you from your enemies and I'm going to give you rest. And he fulfills that promise. And then lastly, the greatest honor is that he will have an everlasting kingdom. Verse 12 and following, God says this to David. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The greatest honor of this promise, this covenant that God enters into with David is that his kingdom will be established forever. It will not be like the other kingdoms that when the family is wiped out, when David dies, that it is just a blip in a history book and goes on. Oh, it will continue forward. David hears all of this and he sings songs of praise, and he has a prayer of gratitude. He responds with worship. But we know not soon after this, David will presume upon God's grace, and he will break the covenant terms. He will fail to love God and follow his ways. And does God discipline David? Yes, he does. He allows for the consequences of his sin and actions to affect him. And affect those around him. But does God break his promises? No. And then after David dies, Solomon comes and Solomon also breaks the covenant agreement. He, he begins to go about his own path, chart his own course. He doesn't love God. He doesn't follow after his ways. In many ways in his life, does God bring discipline to Saul? Actually, he says he's going to here in the passage, and he does. All you have to do is read some of the works of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, and see how those decisions have affected Solomon, the consequences that he faced. But does God break his promise? No. Solomon builds the temple of the Lord as God promised. You see, 
We fail, but God fulfills. We fail, but God fulfills. God enters into this unique and special covenant with David. And though he failed, God still fulfilled it. But you and me are invited into a better covenant. A better covenant with better promises. The book of Hebrews speaks about this covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This new covenant that is mediated by Christ is better. Why is it better? Why is it founded on better promises? You see, David breaks the covenantal terms with God, but God continues to fulfill them. He still fulfills the promises that his kingdom would be established forever, that he would find rest, that his name would be great. But why is David's kingdom established forever? It's not because Solomon built the temple. Solomon built a beautiful temple, but that temple has been destroyed for thousands of years. It's not because of the temple. It's because one would come from the lineage of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the better king, the better mediator, the true savior. And he would come and he would actually follow God's ways perfectly. He would show us what it's like to love God perfectly. He would follow the law perfectly because it's his law. And then he would allow himself to be killed as a punishment for sin. So that justice is satisfied. You see, David's kingdom is established forever because Jesus is, in fact, the new temple who allows himself to be destroyed and torn apart on the cross, but comes back after three days. It raises it back up and invites you into a relationship with God, that invites you into God's presence. God's presence is no longer locked in a building, in a temple, in a box. You are invited into the presence of God to find forgiveness and to find love and to find that you are established forever because of Christ. Because He is a better mediator. He has a more excellent ministry. And it's founded on better promises. Promises like the Spirit of God through faith is dwelling within you, not in a building. Promises like, though you can never perfectly fulfill the law, Christ has fulfilled it for you. So you don't have to live in shame and condemnation. You can, in fact, begin to live free, pursuing to live more like Christ, pursuing to follow God in His ways more because you've been forgiven of your constant tendency to break God's law and His ways. See, promises like, you are established before God and in relationship with Him forever because your name is written in the book of life. Promises like God gives you rest. And the God of peace is near to you and He pleads with you to cast your anxieties and your cares upon Him. Promises like your enemies will never overtake you because God is for you and with you. Better promises, a better covenant because He is a better King, Jesus Christ. And we are invited into that. 
You see, God never breaks His promises. We fail. You fail. I fail. But God fulfills His promises to us. And in closing, I want to bring up an aspect of this verse in in Hebrews chapter 8 that really stuck with me this week in light of the George Floyd tragedy. It says this in the beginning part of verse 6 in chapter 8. It says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. I've been processing this week, this passage and what's happening in our world, and I just begin to think, it's not just that I fail and God fulfills. It's not just that you fail and God fills. It's that we fail. We as a country fail. We as a church fail. We as people fail. But Christ fulfills. It's a more excellent ministry. See, the very fact that we need a Savior, the very fact that we need this excellent ministry of Christ so that we can be secure, so that we can be loved, so we can be forgiven, so that we can be invited into the presence of God, the very fact that we need that should cause us, when we come face to face with evil and injustice, to listen, to be slow to respond, to be quick to reflect, to be quick to investigate our own heart and our own evil, especially when the injustice that we see is being perpetrated on people that are not of our culture and don't have our complexion. Should be quick to listen and to reflect and to investigate our own heart. And we should be humbled at the excellent ministry of Christ. Humbled. Asking God, God, teach me how to live more in your ways. What do I say? How do I speak up? How do I be quiet? How do I respond? How do I love How do I stand for justice and truth and love? You see, when the adulterous woman comes before Jesus, the Pharisees drag her before him. She's committed adultery, and the law says that she should be stoned. What does Jesus say? Hey, you broke the law. You break the law, you face the consequences of the law. Is that what he says? When the man with the withered hand approaches Jesus on the Sabbath in a way that you're not supposed to, in the way that society says, don't act like that, don't look like that, don't do that. Everybody's watching. He approaches Jesus because he's looking for healing. He breaks all the societal and cultural norms. Jesus said, hey, listen, come on. You can't expect to get ahead in life if you don't follow the societal rules. See, when Jesus is on the cross and the thief looks at him and says, hey, will you remember me? Does Jesus say, listen, you're a criminal. You should have not lived that way. You should have chosen a different type of lifestyle. Sorry. You see, Jesus, time and time and time again, speaks truth to power and love to the powerless. He speaks truth to power and love to the powerless. Now, it doesn't mean that that Jesus speaks truth to power without love or that he speaks love to the powerless without truth. He just knows what to emphasize. He knows how to meet people where they're at and how to care for people in a way that is appropriate. Church, 
we fail. We as people, we as a country, we as a church, we fail because we speak truth to the powerless and we speak love to the powerful. We get it twisted. But thank God that though we fail, Christ fulfills. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that we would see your promises ever before us. That we would see the privileges before us that we can step into. That we would see the principle of your promise. That we are nothing without you. That we are great because of you. That we would see your power. That you do not break your promises, but you fulfill them. And that God, in this season, in this moment, in this time, that we would be humbled, Christ, by you and your excellent ministry. That you would minister to us and you would teach us what to say and how to speak and how to love when to love and when to speak truth. Lord, your promises are true and they are better and they are sure and they are abundant and they are for everyone. God, will we cling to that and would we share that as your people, as your church? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.